going. Sorry for the delay, everybody. That is all my fault. I forgot the keys. And then God and his sovereignty prevented everybody from getting early. <laughs> and that's okay, too. We trust the Lord for that. Um, so, let me uh, begin with a word of prayer, and then we'll dive right into Revelation chapter 12. Lord, I do thank you just for the, the assurance you give so many times in Scripture and many promises that you are in absolute control over everything that happens. And therefore, we have no need to fear or even be to be frustrated. Lord, we thank you for um, allowing us to have access here to this facility that we can... Um, can we worship you even in the middle of the week and for what freedom there is in that and even uh, to have heat and warmth uh, as we worship. Lord, I do pray that you would help us to focus uh, this evening and even help me to have clarity as I uh, seek to explain this chapter. And I pray that you would use it to be an encouragement to our hearts, that you'd strengthen us and, um, and stir us up to one of be more faithful to you, Spirit, that you would work through your word uh, to grow us in Christ's likeness. And we pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. Revelation chapter 12. I've entitled this, uh, this message, The Woman, the Dragon, and the Child. John writes, And a great sign appeared in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet and on her head a crown of twelve stars. She was pregnant and was crying out in birth pains in the agony of giving birth. And another sign appeared in heaven. Behold, a great red dragon with seven heads and ten horns, and on his head seven diadems. His tail swept down a third of the stars of heaven and cast them to the earth. And the dragon stood before the woman who was about to give birth, so that when she bore her child, he might devour it. She gave birth to a male child, one who is to rule all the nations with a rod of iron. But her child was caught up to God and to his throne. And the woman fled into the wilderness, where she has a place prepared by God, in which she is to be nourished for 1,260 days. Now war arose in heaven, Michael and his angels fighting against the dragon. And the dragon and his angels fought back, but he was defeated. And there was no longer any place for them in heaven. And the great dragon was thrown down. The ancient serpent who was called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. He was thrown down to the earth and his angels were thrown down with him. And I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come. For the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down. who accuses them night and day before our God. And they've conquered him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony. For they love not their lives even unto death. Therefore rejoice, O heavens, and you who dwell in them. But woe to you, O earth and sea, for the devil has come down to you in great wrath. Because he knows that his time is short. And when the dragon saw that he had been thrown down to the earth, he pursued the woman who had given birth to the male child. But the woman was given the two wings of a great eagle so that she might fly from the serpent into the wilderness to the place where she is to be nourished for a time, 
and times and a half a time. The serpent poured water like a river out of his mouth after the woman to sweep her away with a flood. But the earth came to the help of the woman, and the earth opened its mouth and swallowed the river that the dragon had poured from his mouth. Then the dragon became furious with the woman and went off to make war on the rest of her offspring, on those who keep the commandments of God and who hold the testimony of Jesus. And he stood on the sand of the sea. A very simple outline to, to the text for us kind of follows the paragraphs uh, in both the, the NAS and the ESV. The, the woman, the dragon, the child are introduced as characters in verses 1 through 6. Then there's the description of the great war in heaven, verses 7 through 12. And then a description of the woman's escape from the dragon in verses 13 through 17. And the key to this chapter lies in correctly identifying these three main characters, the woman the dragon, and the child. And remarkably, the significance of these three uh, symbols, these metaphors, are, uh, is actually clearly explained in the text itself. And you can see that for yourselves. Now first, let's look at what this chapter says about who this woman is. And a great sign appeared in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and on her head a crown of twelve stars. Now, this description of her identity is, is not necessarily conclusive, um, but it does hint that Israel is being referenced. Because the other time that the sun, moon, and stars are uh, put together symbolically in Scripture is actually in Joseph's dream in Genesis 37.1, where uh, it represents J- uh, Jacob's family. Jacob being the sun, Rachel being the moon, and then the eleven brothers or 11 stars being his brothers now there's 12 stars here because joseph's descendants are also included here but besides her celestial clothing what marks this woman especially is that she's giving birth to a child and so that that features dominant uh, and that's really what is significant and because she gives birth to the child many people think oh this maybe is this is referencing the virgin mary uh, particularly catholics We'll take this view. But we know it's not a reference to Mary because in verse 17, it says the dragon went after the rest of her children who are those who held to the testimony of Christ. Well, Mary wasn't the mother of all those, uh, all Christians, uh, but, but only a few children and particularly Christ. So this is symbolic of Israel whose seed is the Christ, right? God promised the descendants of Abraham in Genesis 28 that in you and your seed shall all the families of the earth be blessed. So the one in whom all the families would be blessed is this child whom she bears, right? In Galatians 3.16, Paul clearly identifies this as the Christ. The woman's seed is the Christ. He says, now the promises were made to Abraham and to his seed, or offspring, could be translated. It does not say and to seeds, referring to many, but to one and to your seed, who is Christ. Moreover, the woman's child is clearly identified as the one who will rule the nations with a rod of iron. And there's only one person who will rule all the nations with a rod of iron. And that's Christ, the seed of Abraham. We'll look at that a little bit when we look at his identity in just a few minutes. But another reason we know this woman is a reference to Israel is because of what she does in verse 6. 
she does what Israel, what God tells, sorry, what Jesus tells Israel to do in his Olivet Discourse. So if, um, if you fl- uh, flip to Matthew 24, verse 15, Jesus here tells the woman, or <laughs> tells Israel, when they see the abomination of desolation, to fly to the wilderness. And that's where this woman flees, um, beginning the three and a half years, or 1,260 days of tribulation. So Matthew uh, 24, beginning in verse 15, Jesus says, So when you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by the prophet Daniel standing in the holy place, let the reader understand, then those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let the one who is on the housetop not go down to take what's in the house. Let the one who's in the field not turn back to take his cloak. And alas, for women who are pregnant and for those who are nursing infants in those days, pray that your flight might not be in the winter or in the Sabbath, for then there will be great tribulation, such as has not been from the beginning of the world until now, and never will be. And if those days had not been cut short, no human being would be saved. But for the sake of the elect, those days will be cut short. So it's, it's the Jews who are the ones that flee into the wilderness, and they're the ones that are protected and preserved by God. Now, some people have argued, well, is this representative of the church? Right? The 12 stars said representing the 12 tribes, representing the 12 apostles. Well, the problem with that interpretation is the woman gives birth to the Messiah, the one who will rule the nations with the rod of iron. And it's not the church who gives birth to Christ. Right? It's... The, the, um, it's the seed of Abraham, the, the Jews, that have give birth to Christ. Christ is of Abraham's promised seed. All right? Christ gives birth to the church rather than the other way around. So this is, this is referencing the woman, uh, is, is Israel. Let's look at the dragon now. It says, And another sign appeared in heaven. Behold, a great red dragon with seven heads, ten horns, and on his heads seven diamonds. Now, the significance of the seven heads and the ten horns is actually given to us in Revelation uh, chapter 17. So if you flip there, just a few pages. In the description of the beast, it also has seven heads and ten horns, showing that the beast is possessed or under the power of this dragon. In Revelation 17:9, it says this, This calls for a mind of wisdom. The seven heads are seven mountains on which the woman is seated. They are also seven kings, five of whom have fallen. One is, the other has not yet come. And when he does come, he must remain only a little while. Now, the seven heads almost certainly have connection to Rome. And I say that because uh, since its founding, Rome has been identified as the city that is set on seven hills or seven mountains. Um, so this could be a reference to the Roman emperors or future world, world leaders that have some sort of tie to Rome. Or, I think John MacArthur has a good suggestion, that the seven heads are actually symbolic of seven world empires, uh, the, the present one at that time being Rome. That's why, and then of course the one that would come after, the next head would be the Antichrist, who kind of who is the head of a, over a revived Roman empire, as it's described. So, 
The seven heads being Egypt, Assyria, Babylon, Medo-Persia, Greece, Rome, and then a revived Rome. And, and I think that's a good, likely interpretation of, of what those represent. And the ten horns in chapter 17, uh, we, we see in verse 12, are explained. It says, And the ten horns that you saw are ten kings who have not yet received royal power, but they are to receive authority as kings for one hour together with the beast. These are of one mind, and they hand over their power and authority to the beast. They will make war on the Lamb, and the Lamb will conquer them, for he is Lord of lords and King of kings, and those with him are called chosen and faithful. So that's what the horns are representing. The identity of the great dragon, who that is, is actually made very clear in verse 9. He's identified by five names. The ancient serpent, the devil the deceiver, and the accuser, he's called in verse 10. Right? He's called the ancient serpent in reference to his form in the garden when he deceived Adam and Eve to, and enticed them to rebel against God. He's called the devil or diabolos. Now, that word means slanderer, one who makes accusations about others. That's what a slander is. Whether those accusations are true or false, it's an attack on a person's character. And this is why slandering, uh, speaking negatively about the character of others, is, should never be in the mouth of a Christian. We are never more like Satan than when we are accusing other people, when we're slandering them or gossiping them. The word Satan or Satanas in the Greek means adversary or enemy. And the point here is that Satan is the great enemy, not just of Christ and not just of believers, but of all mankind. He, is, he, is, he, has, power, he has enslaved all mankind under sin. Anybody who sins is a slave of sin, Jesus tells us. In fact, Jesus said of those who accused him, You are of your father the devil, and your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning. And does not stand in the truth, because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character, for he is a liar and the father of lies. That's also why Satan's called the deceiver. That that word speaks to leading somebody astray. uh, To try and get them off the right path, so that they can then be ambushed, or trapped, or they would perish. And this is actually the aim of false teachers and false prophets, we're told. In Matthew 24, 24, Jesus says, For false Christs and false prophets will arise and perform great deeds, sorry, great signs and wonders, so as to lead astray, that's the word, to deceive, if possible, even the elect. Right? The goal of a false prophet, the goal of a false teacher, is to deceive. Like, that's why they're not obvious. Right? A, a deceptive person isn't obvious. They're trying to trick you. That means that's why we need to be on the alert, why we need to be uh, discerning. And this is actually how Peter pictures our lives before following Christ. He says, for you once were straying like sheep. Same word. We used to stray because we are under the power of the deceiver. But now we have returned to the shepherd and overseer of our souls. So Satan is the one who deceives us, which causes us to stray. He's also called the accuser. 
This describes one who brings formal charges against one accused of a crime. So he's like a prosecuting attorney. He comes up with a list of accusations. And they may be true. In fact, they may all be true of what he says, what he brings before the throne of God. The word is actually used multiple times in the gospel to describe the ambition of the, the Pharisees and the, the chief priests. They were seeking to find something with which to accuse him of. They didn't find anything, but they were trying to drum up something. And they eventually said, well, he was going to destroy the temple. And they then eventually tried to get him to blaspheme when, by forcing him to admit if he was the Messiah or not. Of course, he was. He wasn't blaspheming. But they were seeking something to accuse him of. That's what Satan does. He's trying to get us to sin so he can slander us, so he can accuse us and condemn us. That's the dragon. This brings us to the child. The male child is Christ. It says in verse 5, She gave birth to a male child who is to rule the nations with a rod of iron. But her child was caught up to God and to his throne. That word for rule here is literally to shepherd. Uh, poi my name. Poi men, which means shepherd. This is speaking, of course, of the great shepherd in Psalm 23. Now, it's actually even the description of he will rule the nation of the rod of iron is actually a reference to Psalm 2 also. With that great messianic psalm that we've mentioned multiple times before. Uh, it says in Psalm 2, verse 8, Ask of me and I will give you, I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. So the identity of the child is clear because there is only going to be one person who will ever, ever rule over all the nations and with such rigidity that that the metaphor is with a rod of iron. This description of Christ actually is one of the strongest texts against amillennialism or postmillennialism. Because although both, both those uh, theological systems recognize that this text is referring to Christ, they can't explain what is meant by the fact that he will rule the nations with a rod of iron. Because although Christ does have all authority, currently, right now, Matthew 28, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. That's true. But he is not yet currently ruling the nations with a rod of iron, with, with rigidity, where they're in abject submission to him. We don't see that. And to claim that he is, is really nearly blasphemous. Because look at the nations. Does it look like they're submitting to Christ? I mean, so you imagine somebody... If, if Peter says, I rule my kids with a rod of iron and I go into the house and it's, you know, chaos. What would I think? I'd be like, he's a liar. So if Christ claims right now that he's ruling the nation with a rod of iron, we would say that's not true. He has all authority. He does. He's governing everything. But he's not ruling it with a rod of iron like he will when he sits on the throne of David in Jerusalem in the future. So the only way this metaphor makes any sense is if Christ will rule over nations who do not naturally desire to submit to him. 
And that's what will be the case in the millennial kingdom. Even for those who would say, okay, well, this is still a future. This is describing Christ's rule in the future state. Well, the problem with that is, why would he need to rule over the nations with a rod of iron if there's no more sin? He would just love them and enjoy them and delight them. You wouldn't, that metaphor doesn't make sense. And so this can only describe Christ ruling the nations when they don't want to be ruled over. Which, of course, is only going to happen in the millennial kingdom. Whether that's a literal thousand years or not, um, that's debatable. I believe it is. But, it, but th- this event has not yet happened yet. And it can't describe the eternal state. And consider of all the descriptions that are given of Christ that could be used, this is the one that he chooses to describe Christ. He doesn't describe him as the Savior who has freed us from sin. I mean, think about that. That's remarkable. Of all the ways you could describe the woman's child, the conquering seed, he's specifically described as the one who will rule the nations of the rod of iron, which indicates that just as the Davidic covenant was kind of the, the chief covenant that summarized all the other uh, Old Testament covenants, likewise, um, in, the New, in the New Testament, Christ's role as Messiah won't be truly completed until he is ruling the nations and they're all subjected to him. So Christ's work of the Messiah has not been fully accomplished. His work of redemption has been completed. Right? He said it was finished on the cross. There's no more debt to be paid. But his Full calling, what he's been called to do as the Messiah has not been fulfilled, and it won't be until he returns and rules upon this earth. And that's what's being conveyed here. And we also know this reference to Christ because it says the child was caught up to the throne of God. And only one person born of women is currently seated on God's throne. And that's Christ. Let's look at the next paragraph where it describes this war in heaven. Verses 7 through 12 describe this great war which ends with the defeat of Satan when he's permanently cast out. Now, we're not told when this war takes place, and so there's a bit of debate among scholars. But there's a reference in verse 12. In fact, the only reference to timing is in verse 12, where it says, The devil has come down to you in great wrath because he knows that his time is short. That doesn't actually tell us when it happens, but we do know that when it does happen, Satan knows the time is short. But there is a min- the mention of Archangel Michael also gives us a clue. Because other than Jude, Jude uh, verse 9, the only other time that Michael is mentioned in Scripture is in uh, Daniel chapter 12, which is uh, in reference to the last days. In fact, I would encourage you to, go to flip over there, Daniel 12. Daniel's the last of the major prophets. That's why Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Daniel. Daniel 12, 1, it says this. At that time shall arise Michael, the great prince who has charge of, the peop- of your people. Speak of Daniel's people, the, the Israelites. And there shall be a time of trouble such as never been since there was a nation till that time. Very similar description Jesus uses to describe the great tribulation, the three and a half years. But at that time, your people shall be delivered. 
everyone whose name shall be found written in the book. So when Michael arises, this triggers a time of great trouble for Israel, such as has never been until that time. There's nothing that can be compared to it in history. So this is going to be extremely... Uh, 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 there's going to be an extreme amount of suffering. And of course, this is almost certainly a, a reference to the Great Tribulation, especially since there's the, the same timing that we see um, here at time, times and a half time. Even the description of the 1,260 days that we saw earlier in verse 6. Mark thirteen nineteen again, Jesus says, For in those days there will be such tribulation as has not been from the beginning of creation that God created until now and never will be. So, probably the best way to understand this is this, uh, this war in heaven when Satan gets thrown out will mark the beginning of that great tribulation period, the last three and a half years. When he's thrown out, he knows he's got three and a half years. And that's when he... Uh, the, the Antichrist will be revealed and he will severely persecute the Jews. And that's when Jesus encourages the Jew. When you see the abomination of desolation in the temple, which uh, the, the Antichrist will defile the temple somehow. He says, when that happens, flee to the wilderness because it's going to get really bad for Jerusalem. And actually, that's what we see described in this, uh, in this chapter. We'll get there in a second. But we can't miss the clear message given to us in verse 11. And actually, this verse tells us how this chapter immediately is relevant to us as Christians. It says, And they have conquered him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony, for they love their lives. They love not their lives even unto death. Now, although Ephesians 6 says we're in a very real spiritual battle, uh, but it, the battle we fight will not be this battle that Michael is fighting in heaven. <laughs> that, that battle in heaven is only going to be between good angels and bad angels. But we do fight a battle here on the earth against demons. And verse 11 tells us how we will win it. By the blood of the Lamb, it says. We have victory over Satan because none of his accusations against us will stand. None of them. Not a single one will stick. Not because they're false, because they might all be true, but none of them are going to stick because Christ has already paid the penalty for all of our sins in full. That's why we can say there's therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ. Right? We, we achieve victory over all of Satan's slander and assaults, not by anything we do, but simply because we've trusted in Christ and his payment on our behalf. That's it. There's nothing we do to defeat Satan. In other words, it's we defeat him through the blood of the Lamb. Right? And that's why Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, 57, in that great chapter about the resurrection, he says, But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through Jesus Christ. The victory we have over Satan is all through Christ. We don't accomplish our victory. But we also achieve victory by the word of our testimony. Now, don't misunderstand. This is not a work or deed that we accomplish either. 
what he means by the word of our testimony is that it's actually seen there in its clarification for they loved not their lives even unto death. This speaks of the evident reality that our hearts have been changed. And we overcome Satan's accusations because it's obvious we truly are in Christ. And how is it obvious? Because we don't love our lives even to the point of death. Right? This is basic Christianity. True believers love Christ more than anything that this world offers. They love not their lives. Jesus told those who wanted to follow him, whoever loves his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will keep it for eternal life. And this is also the example that we're given by Paul in Acts 20.24. When he says he, he wasn't afraid to go to Jerusalem, knowing that persecutions awaited him there. And he said, I don't account my life of any value, nor as precious to myself. My life means zero to me. I'm not trying to cling to my comforts. If only I may finish my course in the ministry that I received from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel, the grace of God. Right? And by way of contrast of what Paul says here, it, it actually tells us what the biggest hindrances to our faithfulness and obedience is. Right? What would keep us from being faithful? What would keep Paul from being faithful? From being obedient to his calling. Loving his life. The greatest hindrance to our faithfulness to the Lord is loving our life now. So what, what, what would it look like to value our lives versus not loving our lives even unto death? Discontentment. Fear of man, personal ambition, the love of money, love of comfort, grumbling and complaining, hypocrisy. I think maybe the simplest way to say it is when we're, we're constantly thinking about how we can improve our situation rather than how we can improve our faithfulness. When we're thinking about how can we make life better for ourselves rather than how can we run the race that is set before us to win. Right? When we're thinking about how to enjoy the race rather than winning the race. That's showing that we love our lives too much. Remember when Peter rebuked Christ because Jesus says, I've got to go to Jerusalem and I'm going to die. And, and Peter said, far be it from you. But turning and seeing his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, get behind me, Satan. Same word that's used to describe Satan here. For you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. That's how Satan thinks. And calling the crowd to him with his disciples, he said to them, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross and follow me. For whoever will save his life will lose it. Whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what can a man give in return for his soul? Remarkably, he says this next. 
For whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father and with his holy angels. The context of even Christ's comments is he's, he's looking forward to Judgment Day. Right? The, everything's culminating to this point in history that we're looking at in the book of Revelation. And that's why we need to think now, not how can we make our lives better, but we need to think how can we run the race before us to win so that, that when we do stand before the judgment seat of Christ, we hear, well done, good and faithful servant, rather than wasted, worthless, squandered. When John Bunyan was released after 12 years of imprisonment, and as you know, he could have been released at any time if he just would have agreed to stop preaching. And it was a severe trial to him and his family. He had a, he had a blind daughter who nobody could care for. And he, he looked back over his life and he considered what was it that, he, that enabled him to endure. He, he wrote an autobiography and, and he quoted 2 Corinthians 1.9 where Paul says, We had this sentence of death in ourselves that we should not trust in ourselves but in God that raises the dead. And then he wrote this explanation. By this scripture I was made to see that if ever I would suffer rightly, I must first pass a sentence of death upon everything that can be properly called a thing of this life. Even to reckon myself, my wife, my children, my health, my enjoyment. He would not make a good American. And all as dead to me and myself as dead to them. He loved his family. But he said, if ever I was to suffer rightly, I must first pass a sentence of death on those things. Ready to let them go at a moment's notice. Those things have no binding on me. Because as long as they did, he would struggle to suffer rightly. He would murmur or complain or wonder, God, why? In, in his book, an excellent book, I highly recommend it. You can get it online called Advice to Sufferers, he wrote this. A cat at play with the mouse is sometimes a fit symbol of the way of the wicked with the children of God. Wherefore, as I said, be always dying. Die daily. He that is not only ready to be bound, but to die is fit to encounter any amazement. What he means, no matter what sort of suffering may be brought against you, if you've already died, What can man do to you? They love their lives not even unto death. That's how they overcame him. This brings us to the woman's escape. Verses 13 through 17. In verse 13, we're told the dragon begins to pursue the woman after he's been thrown to the earth. But the woman escapes to a place in the wilderness where she's preserved. For a time, times and a half time, uh, that's re- a reference to the three and a half years, or as it says in verse 6, uh, 1260 days. Again, this is describing the Jews who heed Christ's warning in his Olivet Discourse in Mark 13. 
And they flee to Jerusalem when they see the abomination of desolation. And the Jews escape the wrath of Satan here because they, represented by the woman, are given two wings of a great eagle. Now, this could be a reference to another nation um, because nations in Revelation in particular and other prophecies are often depicted by an animal. So the eagle could represent a nation. Some people interpret this that way. More likely, though, this is just a metaphorical way of describing God's providential care for the Israelites, his miraculous provision. And I say this because of the first, the, the close verbiage that's used uh, in Exodus 19.4. So if you flip to Exodus 19, right after Israel is saved from Pharaoh's pursuing armies through the Red Sea, says this in Exodus 19.4. You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians, how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Note the emphasis is not just that an eagle saves them, but eagles' wings. Same reference that's used here. Moreover, consider the well-known imagery that's used in Isaiah chapter 40. You're probably familiar with this text. Yahweh says, have you not known? Have you not heard? Yahweh is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He does not faint or grow weary. His understanding is unsearchable. He gives power to the faint. And to him who has no might, he increases strength. Even youth shall faint and be weary. And young men shall fall exhausted. But they who wait for Yahweh shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. And so quite likely this, this prophecy will be fulfilled at this precise moment when Israel has to flee Jerusalem because of Antichrist's wrath. And in remarkable contrast to the preservation to the Red Sea, in, as we saw in Exodus, here Israel will be saved by water on account, uh, or saved from water, I should say, on account of the earth swallowing up. They were saved by water in Exodus. Here, they're saved from water. Now, commentators are divided on whether this is the water here is metaphorical or literal. I tend to think it's literal because three different words to describe water are used. Typically, if a metaphor is going to be used, it's going to be the same word. So the fact that it's in verse 15, it says the serpent poured water like a river out of his mouth after the woman, to sweep her away with a flood. So three different words. It's called a river again as well in verse 16. But whether it's literal or figurative, the point is actually the same. God is going to protect the fleeing Jews from the wrath of Satan. They're going to be preserved. But because he can't get to these refugees who flee from him, he will then turn his wrath Towards Christians. And they're described as the rest of her offspring. On those who keep the commandments of God and, to, and hold to the testimony of Jesus. Christians are considered the offspring of the woman because they are connected to Israel through Christ. Right? They, they become fellow heirs with Christ. And Christ is the seed of the woman. Right? So they too, by virtue of the connection with Christ, are her offspring. 
And clearly, it also we know these Christians because it says they hold to the testimony of Jesus. So that is referring to Christians. But because they're united with Christ, they will also share in Satan's uh, the the wrath of Christ, or the, the the wrath Satan has for Christ, I should say. All right, and Christ said that's what would happen. John fifteen twenty. Remember the word I said to you: A servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will persecute you also. <laughs> we should not be shocked by these things because this is again and again and again we see this in Scripture, and that's why we have to right now. I, I, we do live in very comfortable times, relatively speaking, very little threats, which is why right now we have to be resolved to not love our lives. Right now, we have to begin to learn to let go of things. When God allows things to be ruined, when, when he takes people out of our life, we got to learn to let those things go. To not love our life. To not try to improve our life, but try to improve our faithfulness. Because the time will come when those things will be taken. And the things that we love the best will be taken from us. And if we're going to suffer rightly and honor Christ during those times, we need to begin to release our heart from those things now. But Jesus also said this in Matthew 10, and we'll close with this. Even describing this time of severe persecution, do not fear those who kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. Right? That's a command. Do not fear those who kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. Are not two sparrows sold for a penny? And not one of them. Right? They're cheap birds. And not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father. But even the hairs of your head are numbered. There's no, there is no suffering that comes to you that Christ does not design. Christ designed it. You can trust him. Fear not, therefore, he says in verse 31. You are of Far more value than many sparrows. So everyone who acknowledges me before men, I also will acknowledge before my Father is in heaven. But whoever denies me before men, I will also deny before my Father who is in heaven. He tells us not to fear, but he also gives us a warning. Whoever denies me, I will deny. Well, what would cause a person to deny Christ? Loving their lives. In this world, we have we have to release our heart from improving our lives and instead direct our lives, direct our hearts towards growing in faithfulness. If we're going to suffer rightly, Father, that can't be done aside from your grace. Because there's nothing in our flesh, nothing in our ability to let go of what we love And Lord, even to know how to do that with these good things, these blessings that you've given us. Lord, all the all the comforts we have, we know you give us that we might enjoy them. And so we need grace to learn to accept these blessings, enjoy these blessings without clinging to these blessings. And so we pray for grace to give us categories of thought. 
so that we would not love those things which we should hold with an open hand, while at the same time not begrudging the gifts that you've given to us with, in, in accordance with your generosity as our loving Father. Lord, we want to be able to honor you, especially when the heat gets turned up. And so we pray for grace that you would prepare us for those times even now. And we ask this in Christ's name. Amen.